It's great to see you. We're in uh, week two of the story of Joseph, uh, Joshua. Uh, and I think it's um, a, an opportunity just to remind you, if you want to catch up, you can go to our website, follow the recordings. Uh, if you're not around and you know that you're going to miss a Sunday, you can keep up in that way. I think it's, it's good for us to remind ourselves that uh, journeying our way through the Bible, understanding what God is saying to us through the Bible, is critical in our faith. We can, our faith cannot grow, our understanding of God. In fact, we, we can't even engage with God fully unless we understand the God of the Bible. Uh, and really, that's what uh, we're looking at this afternoon. How can something that happened around about 3,400 years ago uh, engage with us today? How can it speak to us today? What has it got to say? And critically, what has it got to say about God for us today? So I thought one way that we might think about it and try to engage with this uh, story of Joshua is to look at something which describes our mindset today. It, it's a place and it's a subject which if you've been around, you'll know that it's one of my popular choices. It's, uh, the, I'm, gonna, I'm not even going to bother trying the French accent because I know we've got some really uh, excellent French speakers, but I'm going to speak about the, the... I'm going to say council. It says something else, but the Council European for the Research of Nuclear, something like that. Let's call it CERN. It's uh, this huge circle of tubing. Uh, and through that circle of tubing, particles are blasted at ever-increasing rates and then bash into each other and amazing things happen in our understanding of humanity. Let me give you a few numbers because I'm not really going to engage with the science. The numbers are interesting. CERN costs a billion dollars a year to run. A few years ago, they discovered one of the critical particles in the standard model, which is our pursuit of trying to understand who we are, to trying to understand what this is, this physical stuff that we live in. And CERN had been running for 13 years before that was discovered. So $13 billion to discover the Higgs boson. Never mind the cost of actually building the thing in the first place. In a way, nothing could be further away, could it, in our human experience than CERN from a few people crossing a river 3,400 years ago and ending up in an ancient city called Jericho. But at the same time, I think both of these experiences speak dramatically about what we pursue. What we pursue now as humanity is we have ditched, uh, I'll, say, I'll partly say this, we seem to have ditched any kind of pursuit in understanding who we are in terms of our pursuit of God. What we now pursue is understanding the physical stuff, the universe. We find our identity in understanding how things work. That's the ultimate stuff. It's how we understand all about humanity. 
we have now pursued science, or rather we could put it the way Paul describes it in Romans chapter 2. We now pursue the things that are made in our understanding of our identity. That is dramatically different to the world in which these spies crossed the Jordan and went into Jericho. In their world, they understood absolutely everything in the light of the gods as they saw it. I guess the pendulum has swung from one extreme to the other, from understanding absolutely everything from this idea of the gods and which is the God that's true and which is the God that's real, which is the God that exists. And we've swung all the way and we say, I'm not really thinking that God exists at all. But what I really want to understand is our, our reality as human beings and therefore I'll understand what we're made of. We seem to have swung all of the way. And yet I would say the fact that we are here this afternoon is testament to the reality that we can't ditch the pursuit of the knowledge of God. We can't get rid of it. We continue to seek and to search and to try to understand. In fact, in our Western context, I think there is probably more interest, more pursuit, more desire to understand God than there probably has been for maybe 150 years. 100 to 150 years. A, a kind of a seeking in a real way. Not, not the kind of the formalities of religion. The idea of spirituality and, and who are we in the light of something bigger than us. And so, although we seem to be pursuing everything in terms of physical terms, what about God? Joshua, as a book, is an essential question for us today in terms of understanding and knowing what God is like. And I think we're going, to sp we're going to understand that a little bit this afternoon by stepping into the shoes of the spies and this prostitute called Rahab. Let's have a look at what it, how it opens up. How do we see the pursuit of God? The first thing we need to remind ourselves is this. If you, the foundation for the next few weeks was two weeks ago when we understood the idea of kingdom. Everything, everything in the Bible is about kingdom. It starts in the Old Testament with God saying, I'm going to make you, Abraham, a kingdom. You're going to become a kingdom. And he is, he is a nomad with a, a few of his family wandering around the desert. And God says, I'm going to make you a kingdom. Is God going to keep that promise? That's the key question. And in anticipating the kingdom that Abraham was going to become, we also ask the question, is that kingdom enough? So there's the stepping stones. Is God going to keep His promise to make a kingdom? For those of you who are interested in, in the kind of journey of the Bible, what we read in verse 1 and 2 is really fascinating. Then Joshua, son of Nun, sent secretly two spies from Shittim, 
Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. That's the first thing that we see. If a little bit of a journey is God's people come out of Egypt and they wander in the desert towards the promised land and it's imminent in terms of their leaving Egypt. And God says, here's the land that I've given you and, and they send spies into the land and they come back with a message that basically says, there's giants and it's really scary and that is way bigger than our God. We're not going to defeat that over there. And the result of that is that they end up trudging around the desert for 40 years until all of the people who have not had faith in God have died. And now it's the time for the next generation who reach that same place and they say, send in the spies, what are we going to find? And yet, what we find now is the spies coming back ultimately, which is a message saying, the land is ours. <laughs> There's the difference. That's fascinating, isn't it? But firstly, we see spies going into the land and they are spotted and pursued. The king of Jericho, that's a fascinating phrase. Live in the ancient world for a minute. You hear about all sorts of kings. King was a description almost for anybody who ruled over a city. You could be a king of a, of a kind of hamlet uh, because there was, so, relatively speaking, relatively few people in the world. Nations, the concept of nation didn't quite exist. And so you had this idea that Jericho, this powerful city, this well-built city, it's been one of the uh, cities which has been inhabited by human beings the longest in all of our world's history, city of Jericho. And the spies go into that city, it looks like an impregnable city, and they stay in the house of a prostitute called Rahab. And now we have this point where they are spotted, and the king of Jericho sends a message to Rahab, uh, and the message goes like this, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Effectively, deliver them to me. Here's a crunch point. Here's a moment what is Rahab going to do? Because what we want to do is understand what it is to believe in God. What it is to believe in God is to have faith in something that we can't see. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that. It's believing in something that we can't see. Rahab at this moment has a crisis moment of faith. Am I going to put my faith in the gods of Jericho, in the gods of the Canaanites? Do I believe all of those gods? Or am I going to believe the God of these two spies who've turned up from across the Jordan with that band of people that everybody is talking about? Here's the question. Which God am I going to believe in? Do you see how different the world is for Rahab and for the spies. Everything that they lived, everything that they were shaped by was constantly shaped by their understanding of the gods. And Rahab is asking the question, which God am I going to follow? It's a faith crisis for Rahab. 
And what Rahab displays is faith in the God of these spies. She makes an incredible statement in her belief. Uh, and let's, let's just for a moment, let's just avoid the, the tendency for us to think about this as a cutesy kind of story. Rahab makes a life and death decision. Many of you will have known, read, gone to museums, maybe seen it in different places. The incredible stories of bravery of the resistance fighters, particularly in France. Which, which one am I going to decide to, to, to kind of stand alongside? Am I going to stand alongside Hitler or am I going to stand alongside the resistance? They were making life and death decisions on the basis of what they believed in. Rahab is making a life and death decision. She is saying, I am going to trust in the God who these two spies represent more than the trust in the God who we worship. I'm, I'm throwing my lot in with that, that group of people who are on the other side of the river. Look at what she says. The first thing that we say, see is that her faith is a faith of diversion. Look at what she does. The woman had taken, verse 4, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. You couldn't get more of a drama, could you? She is making the kind of decision. She's hiding these spies under the flax on the roof, which is put up there to dry. She hides them underneath, and she sends a message to the king to say, they've left me. We don't know anything more of the spies and Rahab. But what I think is fascinating is the decision that Rahab makes in the light of the conversation that she has, has with these men. Firstly, it's interesting that they go into the house of a prostitute. In other words, it would not be surprising for them to be in that place. But it seems to me that the way that these guys, the witness that these men gave of what they believed was remarkably different from her normal experience. That's what it seems. We don't know, but that's what it seems. What it certainly convinces me of is that the way that they behaved did not undermine who they said they were. The God who we worship, remember, is a God of righteousness and goodness. A God who doesn't believe in child sacrifice the way your gods do. He's a God of goodness and mercy. And the way that they believed is confirmed in the mind of Rahab. They have not subverted that message. 
I think that's massively powerful for us today, isn't it? We live in a world which is interested in God, is searching for God, and yet at the same time has confused views of what God is like. We are called to live in this world in a way which does not subvert the claims of the God who we worship. So that our lives are consistent with what we claim to be. It seems to me that the spies achieved that. That they were consistent with the God who they said they worshipped. I look at that, I look at that demand, I look at that expectation of me and I think, if that's how I am to be, that can't just be a, a kind of activity that I do every now and then when I end up in church. That's a demand when I get up tomorrow morning. It's a demand to live consistently with who I claim to be in the workplace, in my family life, in my relationships with my neighbors, in every aspect of my life. I look at that quite honestly and I think that I am going to struggle. <laughs> but you know, at least I, I want to struggle in that direction. I want to fight for that. I want to live in a way which is consistent with that. I, I, I can't even begin to understand what the temptation must have been for those two men who went into Rahab's, Rahab the prostitute's home and then lived faithfully. But you know, that is what living the witness of the God of the Bible called them to do. And it is no different today. The demands are the same. So the first thing that we see is Rahab expresses this faith because she, at great risk to herself, diverted the forces of Jericho. The second thing is a faith of confession. Look at verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the God, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Do you see the confession that she is making? In the context of her world, she reads all of the events through the lens of the blessing or condemnation of the God that the people worship. And she's saying, I look at the way God has blessed you and the things that have happened to you, and therefore I look at the things that have happened to the people who worshipped other gods, and my conviction is that you worship the true God. 
what she's saying. She goes on basically to say, is, is it possible that I might become part of you rather than part of this? That's what Rahab is asking. And that is the fundamental question that is asked throughout the Bible right the way through to today. Is it possible that I might be part of your kingdom rather than the kingdom that I currently exist in? For Rahab, there is a crisis. She's placed her faith in this God. She's done it at fear of death. She's placed her faith in this God. The question is, will God accept her? Quite honestly, everything is stacked against her. Firstly, she belongs to this nation which is opposed to the God who these men worship. I belong to that over there, not belonging to you. So how can it possibly be that God might accept me? Is that possible? Can that be? Can God really accept me? Secondly, what we see is that the God who is represented by this man, these men, is opposed to her lifestyle. In Canaan, prostitution, it seems from our archaeological discoveries, was an accepted, recognized, and elevated profession. But the God of, of Israel says, this is, this is not how we are to live, how you are to live. My kingdom is to be different to every other kingdom. It's to live a life, you are to live a life which shows mutual dignity and respect and honor and compassion and goodness and righteousness. So don't live, don't shape your life like everything else out there. Shape your life like this. And here's we've got Rahab, who is not part of the nation and is living in a way which is unrighteous to be accepted. It seems as though Rahab has got no hope whatsoever of being part of that kingdom. I'm not, we know, well, we'll find out at the end of this, but it seems as though what the men say to her following on from that is that it's going to be possible for Rahab to be accepted. But it seems to me that in understanding the Bible, it is not satisfying to stay back looking only at Rahab. I think we've got to do a bit of time travel to make a jump from Rahab to a similar situation for Jesus so that we can understand 2,000 years later what this says about God. Rahab's dilemma is the same as a woman who came to Jesus 1,400 years after Rahab. Jesus has gone to the home of the religious, one of the religious elite. His name was Simon. He's a Pharisee. He was, from the outside, he was everything that looked good. Everything that looked right. Everything that looked acceptable to God. 
Jesus is eating with him. Look at what, I'd say look at it, don't look, listen to me. Luke chapter 7 verse 36, it says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood before him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This woman, from the description that we've got, is in exactly the same situation as Rahab, only it's compounded. Rahab lived in a context as a prostitute, which was acceptable to her country people. This woman lived as a prostitute in a context where being a prostitute was unacceptable to her country people. And then she walks into the home of the religious elite, goes to the feet of Jesus, weeps, and anoints his feet with a, a, a rich perfume and wets his feet with tears. It seems a really, really odd thing to do to us until we understand that the custom of the day was that when somebody arrived and you wanted to show honor to that person and, and compassion, not compassion, uh, uh, almost worship, you wanted to say that you really were honored by the presence of this person, what you did was you washed their feet. And this woman goes even further. She washes Jesus' feet with the most intimate of water, her tears. It's as though she's saying, it's not good enough for me just to get a bowl of water. I want to give you everything. Here's a question. Is Rahab going to be accepted? Is this prostitute who washes the feet of Jesus going to be accepted? Am I going to be accepted? Because the reality of my personal experience of me, the inner me, the reality of me, is that I can't stand above a prostitute who washes Jesus' feet and condemn her because I know that I am no better. I know that I am no better. Yeah, I might have lots of veneers and lots of abilities to make it look far more socially acceptable, but the reality is that deep down I am no better than a prostitute who washes Jesus' feet with tears and perfume. And that is right at the heart of the question. Can Rahab become a member of this kingdom 1,400 years before Jesus? Can this woman who washes Jesus' feet become a, kingdom, a member of the kingdom that Jesus has come to declare? Can I, 2,000 years later, can you... 2,000 years later, become a member of the kingdom of Jesus, which continues to declare the goodness and righteousness of God 
in this world. Can we do it? Because the reality is that Rahab is barred, the prostitute at Jesus' feet is barred, and I am barred from possibly ever being acceptable to Jesus. I'm just not good enough. I'm not acceptable. I'm not right. I'm not clean enough for Jesus. Because the reality is, I have a dirty, sinful heart. I'm saying that with an openness to the reality of me. Because it is far easier for me to stand alongside you and say this is the reality of us by describing me. Because that's us, isn't it? The Pharisees who had invited Jesus saw this. And he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What's going on in the mind of the Pharisee? He's saying this, okay, this Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God. In fact, a few few verses later, it becomes really clear the declaration that Jesus is making. I'm questioning whether he can be, firstly, because if he was, he'd know she was a prostitute. And then, if he knew that and still let her wash his feet, then I can't trust him even more because she is not acceptable. That's not what God is like. God doesn't like people like that, they're barred. Jesus turned to him and, and he said, listen, let me, let me describe a story to you. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Jesus asks. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Because that's the issue. It's a recognition of the problem, which means that the only solution to that problem is to come and say, like Rahab, I'm just going to throw myself on the nature of what your God is like, and trust that He'll accept me. I might die for it, but I'm still going to trust. I'm going to trust like this prostitute who walks into the religious elite and says, I'm going to commit social suicide. I'm just going to wash Jesus' feet. And I am going to throw myself on Jesus as the kind of person that I believe Him to be. And it's the same for us today to say, I am what I am inside. But the only thing that I can do in the light of that is throw myself on your character in the trust that you will accept me. It's all I can do. I haven't got anything to bring. 
And Jesus says, you're absolutely right. None of those, neither of those two men had the money to pay back. The only thing that they could do is hope for mercy. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? See, that's, that's where Jesus makes a subtle declaration that I am the God present with you. Because they knew that the only one who can forgive sins is God. And God says, your sins are forgiven. And the woman says, effectively, I believe you. And everybody else says, who is he to say your sins are forgiven? You see, do you see how this little incident where Jesus is accepting the unacceptable is it precisely what we see back in Jericho? Where Rahab says, is it possible that you will accept the unacceptable? Will you accept me? Will you allow me to be part of your kingdom? We know the outcome for Rahab. In fact, the faith that she declared places her in the most unexpected and elevated of places. We don't really hear much else about her until Matthew in chapter 1. And we read this. It's talking about the lineage of Jesus. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And who was Jesse? The father of King David. See where Jesus traces his lineage back. He traces his lineage back to an, an outsider and an unrighteous outsider, a prostitute of Canaan who is accepted into a kingdom, who is drawn in in such an intimate way that she becomes part of the lineage of no less than King David himself and ultimately Jesus. You see, Rahab is saying, I tr- I, I'm trusting in that kingdom. A kingdom that is just a ragtag bunch of people on the other side of the Jordan, but who worship a God who I truly believe in. So in believing in them, I am saying that I believe in their God. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I trust Him. Do you know that is exactly the same for us today? We don't really know how the next years of our life are going to unfold, do we? We don't really know what it is going to cost to say that I trust in that Jesus. We live in a world, well, we live in a land where geographically we are not threatened with death in general terms by saying that we believe in Jesus. We don't have that life or death decision staring us in the face. 
like Rahab did. But there are parts of the world where that is the case. Where the decision to be a follower of Jesus is a life and death decision. And you would say, well, I just want to be kind of cozy spiritually. I want to just go on a spiritual journey. Coming to faith in Jesus is not a game. <laughs> it's a reality. It's something which, say, which makes demands of us. And the reason that Jesus can make those demands of us is because He was willing and loving in such a way that the demands He made of Himself were far greater than we will ever bear. He becomes the ultimate Savior. You see, Rahab looks in the immediate few days and she says, I need a Savior because our kingdom has had it. And I believe in that kingdom. I believe in the kingdom of Joshua. Well, Jesus is the greater Joshua. The Savior who comes not with military power, but with the same kind of power to, to break into the strongholds of our hearts and to say the unacceptable is acceptable to me. Have faith in me. Trust in me. Believe in me.